Welcome to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. We love hearing and sharing stories about social innovation happening both locally and outside our borders in the Global South. In Season 2, we put the spotlight on the change makers behind some incredibly innovative approaches and solutions who are creating systemic change. And we're also curious to find out what keeps them going. Join us as we discover how these change makers are changing the way we're changing the world. My name is Iris Muller Desmit, and I'm your guest host for this episode. A 2021 Bertha Scholar, I am passionate about the role that civil society plays in supporting systems change, and I seek to position my merging body of work at the intersection of feminist activism and social innovation. We'd also like to commemorate World Health Day that happened on the 7th of April this month. This year's theme is Our Planet, Our Health, where the focus is on a well-being economy that has human well-being equity, and ecological sustainability as its goals. These goals are translated into long-term investments, well-being budgets, social protection, and legal and fiscal strategies. With me today is Gillian Moodley, a Senior Project Manager at the Bertha Centre, as well as two other guests that we'll introduce a bit later during the show. Welcome Gillian, it's so good to have you here. Thanks, Iris. I'm excited to give our listeners a glimpse into the innovative health finance world. And I'm excited as well. What I'm looking forward to hearing about in today's episode is the experience of women working in innovative finance for health. Why is it so important, Gillian, for women to operate in the space? Sure, Iris. Innovative finance mechanisms can be used to increase the amount of funding from a traditional source, such as government or your private sector, overseas development assistance or donors, as well as private funding or philanthropies. It can also be used to address the ineffective, inefficient and inequitable funding by using mechanisms like performance-based funding or outcomes-based contracting, one of which is impact bonds. That sounds very interesting, Gillian. Could you perhaps give an example? Yes, of course. Goodbye Malaria Initiative is a program between South Africa, Mozambique, and Iswatini, and is an example of collective funding. The program mobilizes community and social capital with the dual aim of preventing malaria and creating employment through social entrepreneurship. It is co-funded by the Global Fund, the relevant governments involved, and the private sector companies such as Nando's, Bayer Health, Vodacom, Nedbank, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Airports Company of South Africa, among others. What stands out in this example is how priority and social issues can be tackled by combining resources of both the public and private sector. You can read more about this and other case studies in our health finance report coming up soon. That's great. Thank you, Gillian. Dr. Neveline Slingers and Mariella Uria are two inspirational women who operate in this space. Dr. Neveline Slingers is a prominent HIV clinical specialist who wears many hats. In addition to being part of the South African Medical Research Council, or the SAMRC for short, she is the Executive Program Manager for Social Impact Bonds in the Office of AIDS and TB. 
Dr. Slingers was working as a medical doctor in the early 2000s when HIV was at a crisis point in South Africa. We asked her how donor priorities have shifted and what advice she has for women working in the health and development space. Here's what she had to say. At the MRC, we are setting up a a platform to facilitate and guide collaboration between the private sector, government and other sectors so that together they can work out the best place for their investment and expertise and that the programs developed are informed by evidence and the knowledge gained is appropriately translated and scaled up. There is no doubt that donor priorities and donor contributions for health programs have changed over recent years. There is certainly less money available and a greater focus on implementing what the donor thinks is best. This is due to complex reasons, including less funding being available due to tough economic times, but also probably a lack of impact of funds invested. The challenge is that we have many health challenges that are wicked problems and hence need a different approach. It is here that the opportunities for the private sector exist. The opportunity is to use the expertise and funds to drive the necessary innovation for the development and implementation of efficient, cost-effective programs that address the multitude of underlying drivers of these wicked problems. This requires new forms of engagement and collaboration with many stakeholders and will take time because change is a difficult process and needs to be managed specifically. However, this is desperately needed for the ultimate long-term success and survival. For women working in health, innovation and development space, I salute you and celebrate the resilience that you have to show to continue to drive the necessary change for the improvement of lives of people. Thank you. Mariela Uria is a social finance manager based in Colombia. We asked her what her experience has been working with donors, international aid agencies, and both the Colombian public and private sectors to finance health and other developmental priorities. In addition, we asked her what three recommendations she has for women working in the Global South to drive investment in priority areas. Let's hear what she had to say. In 2017, Colombia became the first middle-income country to launch an impact bond involving the government as a funder. This first project aimed to employ uh, vulnerable populations in formal jobs and support them in retaining those jobs for at least three months. Since then, many other outcome-based partnerships have been developed very quickly in the country compared to other similar contexts. One of the key factors that facilitated these achievements was the close collaboration between actors from different sectors. On one hand, uh, donors and multilateral agencies provided technical and financial resources during the initial phases, and also participated as funders alongside the government in different projects. The government also showed strong leadership as it led all the required changes to enable the use of of this new type of mechanism to fund and contract services And finally, uh, private sector organizations were also essential to making it happen, as they participated early on with the aim of finding innovative tools to address social challenges. 
Driving social investment to tackle different social issues can be challenging in many ways, especially in countries with very few precedents in this space. My first recommendation is to build a clear vision of why social investment could be used to address specific social challenges. It is essential to understand the key obstacles in each area and understand how social investment can be used as a tool to improve the living conditions of the population. Understanding these two key points can help you build and achieve your vision. The second recommendation is to find specific strategies to facilitate the adoption of social investment in different priority areas. Social investment can still be considered an innovation in many contexts, and as such, it may require time and effort to be fully adopted. Consolidating a close group of champions with a shared goal to innovate or investing in creating evidence can be strategies to facilitate this journey. Finally, the last recommendation would be to be open to testing, learning and adapting. Social investment can be a massive opportunity to test new approaches to improve the population's social conditions and gaining insights to improve social services. Wow, it's so great to hear from both these women who are making tremendous strides in the field of innovative finance for health. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's interview guests who will be joining Gillian and me in an insightful conversation. Dr. Andrea Feigelding is the founder and CEO of the Health Finance Institute, and Dr. Mara Eroldi is the academic director of the Government Outcomes Lab at the Blavatnik School of Government of the University of Oxford. Welcome, everyone. First of all, for better context for our listeners, give us a quick overview of the work that you do and where you operate. Mara, let's start with you. Thank you, Iris. As you said, I'm the academic director of a research center, the Government Outcomes Lab, uh, which is based at the University of Oxford, at the Blavatnik School of Government. Being based at the School of Government, we take a particular perspective on innovative finance and the outcome-based contracting in particular, in the sense that we look at how government can use these instruments to achieve uh, policy uh, aim and policy goals. We are a center of, uh, we often say, engaged research. So we are uh, really looking at uh, how research can shape decisions and policies. And uh, what we focus on is uh, how you can establish successful cross-sector partnerships between government, civil society, the private sector, and international players as well to tackle social and environmental challenges. We have a global interest, so we cover projects in the high-income country, medium-income country, low-income countries, as well as uh, any policy domain, so not just healthcare, but uh, our key focus in terms of research and engagement is uh, how can you put outcome at the center of designing cross-sector partnerships. Thank you very much, Mara. And over to you, Andrea. Thank you so much, Iris, for having me um, during this podcast today. So uh, about B and the Health Finance Institute, we founded the Health Finance Institute in early 2019 after incubating it for about half a year um, at the Harvard School of Public Health and Harvard Kennedy, Harvard Kennedy School. And we are a U.S.-based uh, nonprofit organization, however, with a very global focus. 
we focus on creating blended finance solutions for underfinanced diseases in underserved settings. Our particular focus is on chronic diseases, or also called non-communicable diseases, and these are diseases like heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and mental health conditions. And the reason we are focusing on them is because they are very underfinanced. So when you look at both national health financing as well as development assistance for health, they receive only a small sliver, like single digit of the percentage of funding in underserved settings, yet make up more than half of the disease burden. That is what constitutes, uh, the disease burden constitutes um, uh, early life lost as well as years lived with disability. Um, our, our institute um, takes a two-pronged approach. We're looking both at the economics of uh, better financing, uh, prevention and early access for treatment of chronic conditions, as well as looking at uh, structuring blended finance vehicles so as to crowd in additional um, financing for these uh, diseases. So we help structure outcomes-based financing or other innovative finance vehicles to ensure that there exists greater access uh, for persons living with these conditions in underserved settings. Lastly, we are also engaged in advocacy. So we write think pieces, we organize events, um, and we uh, contribute to podcasts such as this one. Amazing. Thank you so much, Andrea and Mara, and welcome to the show once again. Gillian, earlier in the show, you mentioned the Goodbye Malaria case study. What are some other successful case studies? Thank you, Iris. So um, we looked at a number of innovative finance um, mechanisms in what is considered a toolbox. Um, and in the South African and Southern African setting, we found, for example, the Discovery Initiative, which helped fund students' education so that they could practice medicine and other healthcare practices in rural areas. There was also a big hospital built in Pretoria that focuses on ESG outcomes. So, for example, they aim to reduce carbon emissions, reduce the water consumptions, reduce landfill waste, and improve the patient experience, which ultimately improves patient outcomes at the end. Lastly, there is something called an impact bond, which will be implemented in South Africa later on. Um, but just as an example, it scored quite highly according to four criteria we used in a report. This is called relevance and coherence, effectiveness and efficiency, impact and sustainability. So in the Bertha Center report, we ranked all of these case studies according to the four criteria. And listeners of the podcast will be able to access the report soon. Thank you very much, Gillian. I'm glad you mentioned impact bonds, Gillian, because this leads quite nicely to a question I have for Mara. Mara, what are the latest trends for impact bonds in the Global South according to the Indigo database? Oh, thank you, Iris. Indigo stands for the International Network on data for impact and government outcomes. And uh, as you said, is a data collaborative that hosts a number of data sets. The largest of these data sets is the data sets on impact bond. And uh, today worldwide, there are uh, 
227 of these income bonds. In terms of uh, the global south, is uh, an emerging practice. So of the 227 global IMPA bond, only 17 currently are in the global south, and uh, six of them are in uh, health at the moment. And then there are the highest other numbers are employment skills or education. But we are starting to populate a pipeline data set for impact bonds that are in the design phase. Not all, not all of them will be launched, of course, but uh, we were collecting this pipeline recently and we have about 19 IMPA bonds, including the one Gillian mentioned just now, that uh, are a plan and they are uh, trying to be launched in the Global South. Most of those are in education and health. We also have uh, an interest in developing outcome funds and outcome funds are just a, a portfolio approach. Instead of launching one IMPA bond at the time, the idea is, uh, can we launch a number of IMPA bonds at the same time so we can exploit some economies of scales? We can design part of the IMPA bonds that are common across many projects so that we can learn from the experience and we can replicate things in close succession. So there are 17 being uh, that have been launched to date. We recently launched a report called Understanding Outcome Funds that is available online if somebody Googles for it. But there are as many, I think 18, in the design phase. So there is a, a raising interest in the use of uh, outcome fund as a way to scale up this innovative approach. And uh, on an aside, we are uh, seeing emerging new impact bonds in a new policy domain, which is uh, tackling the climate crisis. So very innovative. There are outcome-based contracts in environment but for energy efficiency, but now the appetite to combine social and environmental outcome and build resilience is something that is uh, upcoming. And uh, hopefully we will cover uh, some of those new projects at our conference in September, which is the place to know what is the latest trend in, uh, in September, which is a hybrid conference. So I hope many of you will attend. Yes, thank you, Mara. We hope we will be there, whether virtually or in person. My next question is to both of you, Mara and Andrea. And I'm curious, um, why should governments be interested in impact bonds or outcome-based contracts for health and other development priorities? Perhaps we'll start with you, Andrea? Sure. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really a great question, especially since, as Mara mentioned, um, we're just beginning, it's just the beginning of um, impact bond and outcomes-based contracting in, in, uh, in the global south. And um, government should be interested in outcomes-based contracts because they can ensure that projects have a strong focus on M&E, on monitoring and evaluation. There's also a component, uh, a, a cost management component that might be of interest to governments. So they would only be liable for payments if a certain outcome is achieved. Um, it can also help spread, um, these types of contracts can help spread costs over time. So if there's milestone-based payments for achieving outcomes and cost savings or efficiencies can be identified as the project progresses as well. Um, I do want to caveat my answer though, that um, there are also certain components that governments um, have to take into consideration when engaging in these types of 
these types of contracts, such as that planning is absolutely key and the feasibility must, must be studied and understood beforehand. Um, and that data are absolutely critical. In the chronic disease space, we often have very poor data infrastructure and therefore the outcome measurement component um, needs to be sometimes built as these uh, uh, structures are built as well. On the other hand, however, it can help um, catalyze like, engaging in these impact uh, bond type of structures can help catalyze building these, these better M&E monitoring and evaluation and um, data infrastructure um, uh, infrastructure. Um, and the, the other part of it is, is that it, it fosters public-private or multi-partner collaboration, which we view as a very good thing at the Health Finance Institute, but sometimes it takes a bit of getting used to that there's multiple parties involved in paying for social outcomes, such as health outcomes. Thank you so much, Andrea. Over to you, Mara. Uh, I echo what Andrea has said. I agree with the importance of uh, bringing a focus on outcome. And uh, I would like to reflect a little bit on the big picture. So at the moment, and coming from a school of government, the big picture from the perspective of government. Government is uh, usually the outcome payer in this uh, project, um, or at least to an extent in, in, in the global south, often with uh, international agencies. But there is a complete different mindset when we are trying to pay for outcomes instead of paying for activities. And uh, this is a trend that we are uh, uh, observing worldwide, the attention to the uh, sustainable development goal, the impact, measuring impact, being accountable for impact. And there is this close attention to see if uh, every dollar that is being spent is producing the desired outcome. So those instruments are uh, an, a response, um, a tool that really helps us to understand are the money going towards the outcomes that we intend because it's monitored uh, along the way. As Andrea said, there is a challenge. We need to build competencies and capabilities to monitor and uh, learn from this project. But those competencies are uh, relevant beyond the particular impact bond. We would expect our government officials to take care of uh, the limited resources that are available and how could they take care of it if they don't know what is the results from those investments? So I think the interest is really in creating a value for money, creating a case for improvement and learning. But when it comes to health in particular, like one of the challenge of these metrics is, uh, of these instruments is defining the metrics. So having an outcome focus means that we need to be able to measure this outcome in a way that is credible, and uh, it's also feasible in a limited time and with limited uh, resources to spend on measurement. And health in particular has such a long history of uh, measuring health outcomes with the quality adjusted life years, with the burden of disease. And there is so much research and evidence on which we can build these um, these metrics and uh, come up with a credible baseline. So I think the instrument is interesting uh, in itself for value for money, but in healthcare, we we start 
ahead of the game in a way when it comes to the challenge of defining the metrics because we have metrics that have been in place for a long time and we have a lot of research to fall back on to build the cases and feasibility studies. That's wonderful to hear, Mara. Chilean, I think you have something that you want to share as well. Thanks, Iris. Yes, certainly from the Bertha Center perspective in the impact bonds we've been involved in, um, I think what we've noticed is that stakeholder engagement and obtaining buy-in from the relevant officials in government takes a lot of time and effort. So I think we've also got to be cognizant of that. Um, uh, it, I'm sure in other global South countries as well, this will be a huge effort from the team in order for the government to create an enabling environment for these. Thanks, Gillian. It's one of the things I was thinking about as well, that in a lot of these partnerships with a range of stakeholders, building trust, the kind of investment that you need to do beforehand to create a conducive environment for collaboration, for shared trust around these matrix that you are using um, to define the outcomes is, is such a process. And thank you for highlighting that, to highlight the complexity of um the partnership building that is required to really enable um, outcomes-based contracts and impact bonds to work in different contexts. Mara, over to you. Yeah, I want to highlight that there, there are so many cases that we've studied at the GoLab where a lack of engagement of some key stakeholders, especially from government, they come to the table a bit too late, uh, has caused the project not to, quite, not, not to work. So the planning that was mentioned by Andrea and Gillian, the st stakeholder engagement, is a theme that comes through in all the case studies we've seen. So I just want to echo and stress what they've been saying. There are over and over examples of uh, projects that uh, fail to launch just because government or uh, other key stakeholders have been brought to the table a bit too late. Thank you so much, Mara. That seems like such an important point. And it reminded me of the phrase moving at the speed of trust when it comes to partnership building. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. My next question is to the both of you, Andrea and Mara. And perhaps let's start with you, Andrea. What are the other potential areas where impact bonds and outcome-based contracts can be used for improving health conditions in the global south? Yeah, I think that's that's such an important question. And from a big picture perspective, um, we've engaged in a study with several collaborators um, at the Washington University, as well as uh, Harvard School of Public Health, where we looked at a project that's called the Disease Control Priorities Project that has looked at what are the key health, health interventions and health areas on a path to universal health coverage. And where along this path, uh, the question that we asked was, where along this path have we seen examples of innovative finance and where along this path does it make sense? And what we found is that it, when it comes to financing commodities, so like vaccines and supplies and medicines and, and devices, that there is an opportunity for the implementation of innovative finance vehicles. When it comes to broader policies, uh, uh, population-based policies and outcome funding thereof, we've only seen examples of that kind of innovative finance, of innovative finance structures to support those projects in high-income countries. So we haven't seen any evidence on that. 
in, in a more um, lower income setting. And the other area is um, health facility investments. And sometimes there's an equity component, equity investment component that is involved. So we also have seen so that uh, health facility investments can also be um, structured or supported by outcomes-based financing or some of these innovative finance approaches. Um, more specifically speaking, if you look at um, uh, you know, the specific project context, uh, some examples of impact bonds that are being used right now are uh, support menstrual health and hygiene. There's an impact bond to that end in Ethiopia uh, for clean water and sanitation. Uh, there is a project in Cambodia with a rural sanitation development impact bond, um, health worker training, and that lends itself quite well because, you know, you can have quite specific before and after evaluation of, of training and application of that training, uh, as well as maternal and newborn health bonds such, such as the Utkrist impact bond. There was a... Um, effort to launch an impact bond on diabetes and heart disease in Kenya, as well as a cancer impact bond in a uh, developing country setting that has, to our knowledge, um, failed because um, just, I guess, a lack of understanding of what it means if there's a private sector investor and the government basically paid back the private sector that investment. So, um, I'm simplifying uh, what happened a little bit, but um, what we see is is that a lot of the, these efforts stop in the tracks. And I, I'd be actually very curious to see if you know, you know, if if Mara, <laughs> I don't know if I can mention Mara in my in my answer here, but I'd be actually quite curious to see if if these are challenges that that we can overcome because where we sit, we see these great potential, these impact based. Uh, impact bonds uh, instruments. However, um, it takes a lot of trust and time and upfront investment and patience to make them work. Mara, over to you. Thank you, Iris. I actually agree with what Andrea has said in terms of uh, in the Global South, we observe the use of uh, impact bonds and innovative financing mostly for um, intervention, curative intervention, vaccination, rather than preventative intervention, compared to what we observe in the global north. So in the global north, there are a lot of uh, bonds using, used for uh, prevention of cancer or diabetes and behavioral change. Having said that, we have uh, just reviewed um, the Inderhands Impa Bond, which is a uh, in implementation right now in Kenya, and is looking at changing the behavior, the health-seeking behavior of uh, young girls for reproductive and uh, sexual health. So there is an attempt now uh, to look at some interventions that are more uh, preventative and uh, related to behavior change, even in the global south, but still small number compared to the global north. I think in terms of uh, the Potential area on the use of impact bonds, going back to your uh, question, Iris, um, the, the biggest game is the long-term strategy that some countries are playing. So I do observe uh, raising interest 
in the use of outcome funds. So launching a multitude of uh, IMPA bonds in a particular area as a mean to reform the public sector, as a mean to create competencies in an ecosystem, to open new clinics, to hire new uh, personnel to support the delivery of uh, health outcomes. So there are, you can look at project by project, but you can also look at the long-term strategy. And uh, one of the challenge for this long-term strategy is the duration of these contracts. So even the in their hand project that we just reviewed, one of the uh, lessons learned was that the project was a bit too short. So it is an 18 month project. And if you really want to change behavior, uh, you need to have a longer time horizon. And when it comes to reforming an entire sector, uh, projects that are uh, two, three years are a bit short. And so they need to be embedded on a big reform strategy at the level of the country, which reminds us of the importance of engaging with country government from the outset. At the end of Andrea's response, she mentioned some of the challenges in the implementation of Impact Bonds, Mara, and she was wondering if you had experienced similar challenges or had strategies and tactics um, to overcome some of the challenges that we observe um, with outcomes-based contracting or Impact Bonds. Can you share some of your experiences around how to navigate some of these challenges that emerge, particularly with multi-partner um, engagement to support the implementation of impact bonds? Ah, what a question. This is, a, <laughs> I think uh, there is a, one general advice that we often give. It is to focus on the problem rather than the instrument. So often we try to think how innovative finance can tackle these issues. Whereas I think having a sound understanding of what is the problem you are trying to solve, spending the time to articulate your so-called theory of change. So what are the chain of uh, uh, behavior and changes that you expect to observe when you roll out a program and why you are thinking of this particular instrument? Uh, but putting the problem at the center, I think, is uh, fundamental to have the right stakeholder at the table that are engaged on something they care about. Often designing an outcome-based approach is exciting at the beginning. It's a visionary exercise. You're asking people to define what good should look like. It's exciting. And uh, that excitement is really, really important to go through all the planning, the back and forth that is necessary. And then it's really important to keep an open mind. Sometimes an outcome-based approach is not the right one. Sometimes it's not a matter of innovative finance. Sometimes the timing is wrong. So it's really important to uh, keep the options open and try to see why this approach seems to be the right one to solve the problem and keep the eyes on the problem. And another advice that I often give is to is a revealing question, is asking yourself, what is your exit strategy? So let's suppose we are designing this program and we think an impact bond is the right type of approach and it overcomes some of the challenges. You need to ask yourself, what do you do at the end of it? Because are you planning to do another impact bond? Or are you doing it because you want to maybe... Uh, do some R&D and you want to improve the design of a particular instrument that then later on you commission as a grant. So I think being crystal clear on why 
you are doing, what you are proposing to do is the, the secret ingredient to bring the stakeholder to the table and keep the conversation open and focus on the problem. The duration of contracts is always an issue. Um, the returns and the, what is acceptable are issues, but they're all, all issues that we can overcome if there is a shared understanding of why this is important and why this way of operating is better than business as usual. If it is, because it might not. Thank you for that response, Mara, and the emphasis on clarity and the clarity of our intent of our partnership is something that really stood out to me in your response. Moving on to non-communicable diseases, Andrea, how can innovative and blended finance tools be used to strengthen health systems and assist in addressing non-communicable diseases, which largely seem to be forgotten? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. It's 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 really a question that is so central to the work we do and the work I care about uh, a lot because, as you mentioned, there's such a dearth of investment in chronic diseases, yet such a growing disease burden. Um, in um, uh, there's a lot of comorbidity between infectious and chronic diseases, and just a lot of chronic disease burden globally that that we really really need to address. Um, there are, by and large, five archetypes of innovative funding that can enhance traditional healthcare funding in, um, in developing countries or the global south, and that is blended finance. Um, we also see a novel private insurance working for chronic conditions, um, multi-source crowdfunding, um, specific novel financial services, um, and then the... Uh, uh, sort of government funding schemes that are supplemented by uh, by philanthropy or de-risk by philanthropy as well. So innovative and blended finance can um, address uh, several of the issues uh, around entity financing, chronic disease financing that have, we think, prevented uh, traditional uh, development assistance in the past. Um, so it can improve the sustainability and catalyze long-term funding by providing proof points of success that, yes, indeed, in the short and medium term, we can show tangible outcomes and, uh, and it's not a forever issue. Um, uh, innovative and blended finance can also allow for larger sums of capital to be invested in longer-term projects. Um, and and thereby can increase the, the financial and the health sustainability in the long run as well. Thank you so much, Andrea. And as we wrap up our conversation today, what recommendations or advice do you, Andrea and Mara, have for women working in the space of driving social investment for health and social priorities? Mara, let's start with you. I think the number one advice I have is to persevere and to focus, it might be a bit stereotypical, but on uh, building trust and building relationship. Uh, the stereotype is that women are very good at bringing people around the table and uh, build long-term collaboration. And I think this is very much needed in this space. And so this is an asset. Keep doing it. Hmm. Thanks, Mara. And over to you, Andrea. I would like to echo the notion of perseverance and and add to it by saying we should also not be afraid to lean on each other, not just to lean in, but to lean on each other, because sometimes it can get lonely as a woman in leadership and finance. So these are two areas where there is a dearth of women leadership that we see 
50% of, I believe, community healthcare workers are women, but only um, like less than half of uh, leadership in global health are represented by, by female leaders. So um, we, you know, we have a double or triple burden of uh, being the first, being few, and also being a role model. And um, and then also don't be afraid to also include men in your support because I found that some of the strongest support in in being a female leader and 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 shows of confidence have actually come from men who said no you can do this as well so I think it's not just a, a women issue it's also an issue where we can. Um, uh, you know, uh, seek support across the gender spectrum. So we should not forget that either. Thank you to our amazing guests, Mara, Andrea, and Jillian for a fascinating conversation on innovative financing mechanisms for health and other social development priorities. I've really appreciated your depth of insight, the experiences that you've shared, and the knowledge that you have provided to support us on our journey and to pique our interest in the use of innovative financing mechanisms for health and for other social development outcomes. Thank you to you all. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much, Iris. Um, This was so wonderful. And especially because it was my first podcast experience and you've made it a very enjoyable one. And it was a one with uh, a female only panel, so to speak. So it was um, especially delightful. Thank you, Iris, indeed. And as Andrea said, as women, we lean on each other. It was. Um, I learned a lot. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Iris. Um, I think the Bertha Center especially looks forward to an ongoing relationship with both the GoLab and the Health Finance Institute. So we'll definitely keep the conversation going from our side. Thank you. As we conclude today's episode, one of the things that really stood out for me is how innovative finance can be used for social priorities that don't have enough funding. I think about priorities such as gender-based violence that receive a lot of media attention and political statements, yet the money seems to lag behind. And I wonder, how might innovative finance overcome some of these inequities in funding in social priorities such as gender-based violence? Two other points that also stood out to in our conversation today was the different uses of innovative financing mechanisms in the global north and the global south. I was very fascinated to hear that innovative financing mechanisms in the global north are targeted towards more preventative approaches to health, whereas in the global south, it is targeted towards more responsive approaches to chronic diseases, as well as um, healthcare system reform. The last point that really stood out to me today is the reality that behavior change takes time. And I think this this long-term nature of behavior change also speaks to the work of social change. And it's certainly something to think about as we advance systems change for social justice. It's so exciting to think what is possible in the health sector when we think out of the box and make use of alternative innovative ways of funding. I'm also leaving here today feeling so inspired by all the women who are making huge strides in this field. 
If you're interested in finding out more information about the reports mentioned in this episode, please do take a look at the show notes or visit our website www.gsbbirthacenter.uct.ac.za. Thank you for tuning into Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're curious about what innovation is happening in Africa and in the Global South, and who the movers and the shakers behind these initiatives are, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes.